Welcome to the I Now Pronounce You Divorced podcast, where we have three award-winning family law attorneys dive into intriguing topics like divorce, military divorce, custody and visitation, trust and estate planning, and all things family law. Join us as we provide a comprehensive viewpoint through the eyes of our experts and guests aiming to educate and soothe our listeners. Get ready to tune in because I Now Pronounce You Divorced starts right now. Hi, I'm Charles Hatley with I Now Pronounce You Divorced, and today I'm here with Rebecca Malone, and what we're going to be talking about is something that comes up a lot in uh, in, in almost every single conversation we have with people and almost every single uh, thing we read from people going through divorce, and that is parental alienation, and what is parental alienation? So I, I wanted to bring in Rebecca for this conversation because I know that you know she just recently was invited to speak about parental alienation. And I, and you know, the more you hear about it, the more you're like, this is more, we need to talk about this problem. So Rebecca, go ahead and tell us what is parental alienation? Sure. So the, the traditional definition of alienation really has more to do with physical withholding of visitation or physical restriction of access to a child. So when parties are either going through separation or divorce and they're living in separate households, one parent basically says, the child is going to stay with me and they can't see you. No, they can't see you at all. Um, that's been kind of the traditional, you know, this is, is parental alienation, black and white. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen my child in X number of months or years or however long. But really what we're seeing is that it's so much more than that. So you may have a situation where you're not necessarily denying physical access to the child, but you're you're psychologically either treating that child as an adult and involving them in adult conversations or you're saying things to intentionally disrupt or um or even eliminate the relationship between the child and the other parent so that even if the other parent gets access to the child the child will say i you know i don't want to go with you i don't want to talk to you i you know you owe my mom, child support, whatever that might be. Right. Um, and so a lot of alienation really comes from things that are happening behind closed doors. And, and so what we're seeing now is courts are a lot more willing to recognize this other conduct as creating the same problem. You're still, you're still impacting that relationship for the other parent. You're still negatively impacting the child, even though you might not be doing, you know, the traditional, withholding of access or, you know, cutting off any sort of communication. And, you know, parental alienation, like I say, it's more than just physical, right? The physical is obvious. You know, I, I'm not letting you see the child for whatever reason. Uh, it was your time for visitation. I didn't answer the phone and I did not appear for visitation. That one's obvious. So I'd really like to break this, one, this out into the two different types of alienation, right? Physical and mental. If you're being physically alienated from, from your child, what can you do? So I, unfortunately in Virginia, there's not a lot that you can do in the short term, unless mm -hmm. you can show that the child is at some sort of risk of abuse or neglect or is being mistreated, um, you know, in, in some way in the other parent's household, you really can't do anything immediate to get them removed from the household. So the best thing is to set yourself up for future success when you do get in front of a judge who can actually do something about the custody and visitation situation. Um, so creating a paper trail and, and documenting 
hey, I want to come pick the child up. I, I want to take them out to dinner. I want to take them to their sporting event. You know, I want to get them after school today, whatever it may be. Um, but just having those repeated requests and seeing either the denial or them being ignored or having other, you know, excuses um, so they can show this wasn't a choice by me. I didn't just leave and, you know, go on vacation for the past six months and ignore my kid. I've been trying every single day to either see them, FaceTime with them, you know, have a phone call with them, something. And I've been denied. The answer has just mm -hmm. been no throughout. Um, so that's one of the best ways is to just demonstrate the repeated effort and the denials and, and show the baselessness of those denials, um, you know, alongside those more than reasonable requests. I know uh, for a fact that a lot of the sheriff's office and the police departments are no longer helping out in domestic situations. So you can have a, a wonderfully crafted custody visitation order and you call the police and say, look, you know, the other parent refuses to, to turn my child back over. And the police say, oh, we don't get involved in matters like that. You know, the, the best they will do is to show up and make sure that the child is safe, but they're not going to physically pull the child out of the home. However, right. I, I found that by calling the police, what you then have, you know, you're talking about creating a paper trail. You have a wonderful paper trail of, you know, this. And, and I'm very excited. We're also going to be joined by Dan Cuneo today, uh, talking about parental alienation and, you know, how it affects in, in his jurisdiction. So, you know, we, we, we really covered um, being able to talk about parental alienation within Virginia and how the police really aren't being very responsive to, to forcing the, these exchanges. What jurisdictions are you licensed in, Dan, and what do you see for parental alienation? Sure. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, what a what a great topic to to talk about. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it's such a, a hard thing to prove sometimes in courts because sometimes it turns into a, a he said she said type case. And in in order to really start preparing and, and trying to prove the parental alienation syndrome, which Often a lot of people have that acronym PAS, uh, at least where I practice in, which is Missouri, Illinois, North Carolina, and ad hoc into a couple other states. It, it, it's really the courts kind of look at it from the, the child's perspective. It's a child being some put in the middle between mom and dad. And then if so, what does that look like? And it's not just, oh, your mom is upset at, at you or mom's upset at me. It's more of a conti continuation of, mom doesn't love you, dad doesn't love you, uh, calling the parents by different names, uh, having the child feel like they have to be put in the middle between certain arguments of the parents, or really having the child feel that they have to choose. And, and that happens consistently, then courts are more apt to take a, a deeper dive into it, we'll call it. But it's, it's so hard, and I just know in my experience, that when we have these issues arise, which is so unfortunate, that it, it really, it's the skill of the attorney, quite honestly, to be able to bring that out in, in the case and, and really craft and create the, well, we'll say one proper discovery questions, but really it's in the depositions where I find the most success to be. And, and for both of you in, in the different jurisdictions, I'll let Rebecca go first and, and then Dan, what about an emergency motion or some sort of expedited motion or, or hastened motion on the court's docket? Right. So in Virginia, there's a couple of different options to try and get your case heard a little bit more quickly. 
Um, and certainly we're, when you have this going on and you say, I haven't seen my child in six months, I want the court to do something for me, right? Um, an emergency motion is gonna be really restricted to situations where that child is either being abused or they're at risk of some kind of immediate threat of harm. And so the court does set aside some time on the docket where you can get in front of a judge within the next day or two days or something like that um, for these really horrible situations where we have to get the child removed. There's really a danger. There's a risk. There's something something bad going on. Um, another option in Virginia is to ask for an expedited hearing. And so that doesn't require quite the same standard. Um, you don't have to show that that sort of immediate need for intervention, but you can show some sort of basis for expediting the hearing. So a lot of the time that will have to do with like a school registration deadline, or maybe there's medical care that isn't being kept up with. The child needs to go to the doctor. They need certain medication. Um, but those are the scenarios that are going to be more likely to be granted for um, for an expedited hearing. Sometimes if you can show a good basis for your alienation claim, if you can say, you know, I've been cut off completely for a certain amount of time and, you know, I'm, I'm in need of some sort of intervention from the court before this gets worse. Um, some judges will grant you an expedited hearing on that basis, but it's really case by case and you have to be able to document the length of time, you know, the unreasonableness and the other sort of surrounding circumstances. Um, but those are the only two ways that you're able to get in front of a judge more quickly in a custody or visitation case in Virginia. Yeah, in, in the states where I've practiced in, and one of them, Missouri, you can file what we call a family access motion. So you, you get heard much quicker and that there's statutory guidelines so the court has to, to hear the case. But then, as Rebecca was saying, if there's an emergency, you can file an emergency action with the court, request an expedited hearing, and then the court, based upon what's the in the on the petition, may or may not grant that and just set it for a, a, an actual hearing sometime down the line. But if you want to show that there is that emergency situation, what the court's really going to look at, and they and they, they really scrutinize those allegations in there, and it's really more favorable towards the. The custodial parent at times, but the court's going to look at what is the harm that is being alleged to the child. Is it imminent? If it's imminent, then of course they're going to to get involved right away. But if the parent is using it as more of a an action just to get back at the other parent or think they could get some type of tactical advantage, then the court's really going to scrutinize what the the sole purpose of filing that action is. But as Rebecca was saying, if there is harm that's imminent or harm to the child, that's going to and danger or damage that relationship, then the court's most likely going to hear that. And the court also is going to take into consideration the age of the child too. The younger the child, the more impressionable they are. And then those are several factors that at least where I practice, the court's going to take a, a look at to make sure that we're not preventing the parent from seeing the child, but also not impairing that relationship, especially when you have an infant or a toddler. They're at such an impressionable age that Anything that's being said, they're just soaking in and absorbing, and then that could damage that relationship with the parent down the road. So the courts will want to try to get in much sooner. And another avenue that at least I found to be successful, if you can't get in on, on a court docket, because as we know these days, sometimes even emergency, you don't get in mm -hmm. until uh, a couple of days later, which to the parent, that's an eternity, and, and we get that. But we can also uh, ask for a guardian ad litem to be appointed too, and then someone gets involved right away and can make a, a decision. And then if 
that doesn't happen immediately, then I've always advised clients just to document everything. Document, document, mm -hmm. document. Because when we do have our day in court or we're talking to that guardian ad litem, then we can show here's everything that we've tried to do to correct the situation, or at least bring it to the attention of the other parent. And we tried without judicial intervention. We try to resolve this amicably, but the other parent, for whatever reason, is just not being cooperative and not looking out for the best interest of the child. And in the states where I'm licensed, that's always the guiding factors. What is mm -hmm. in the best interest of the child? And, and that's really kind of that, that North Star that the, the court's going to use to help guide and aid in any type of decision making. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think, you know, as we talk about, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the, the physical part's easy, right? I was supposed to have time. You denied my time. I send you a text message. I call the police, document it through a, a police report. I send you an email, you know, putting things in writing that are respectful, of course, you know, not I hate you and I'm going to do something really bad to you if you don't give me the child. It's like, hey, my visitation is supposed to start at 6 p.m. Where are you? And, and then you can show that. But I think that segues really nicely into the, the, the mental aspect. You know, Dan, you kind of brought up the, the PAS and, you know, the impact that we're now starting to see. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. The, the impact to the child can be quite severe. As we were talking earlier, age is a huge factor because of just their ability to comprehend and understand. But courts really want that frequent, continuing, meaningful contact, at least in the jurisdictions I'm in. And I'm willing to bet that the majority of others have something very similar, right? They want parents to be able mm -hmm. to work and cooperate and foster a loving relationship between uh, the three of them. And if there's anything that's in invading or uh, trying to change that dynamic, then the court's going to take a closer look at it. But the court's always going to look at how is this affecting the, the mental uh, ability of the child to really comprehend what love and affection is between mom and dad. And that's where... Uh, the, the uh, parental alienation syndrome is really coming into play. And there's a lot more cases that are actually taking a, a closer look as to what, what does that mean? Uh, I, I know when I first started practicing, it wasn't even recognized as an, an issue in the court system. And so we've made leaps and bounds over the past few years or so. I, I don't know if I want to say decades to date myself, but well, just say over the past few years, they've definitely seen the pendulum swing more in favor of truly looking at what is in the best interest of the child. And the courts, at least in the cases that I've been involved in, it can be some very heavily litigated uh, cases. And one of the things that um, I'm, I'm sure most are wanting to know is we have these issues. We, we know what's going on. So what? So we have the court date. We file the proper motions that you've identified. So the next step would then most likely be we need to get an expert involved because if you going on the stand and just having uh, direct and cross-examination of the parents isn't really going to put the best case forward if you're, if you're the true victim. And, and my success with these types of cases is getting the right expert involved, but getting them involved early and being able to work with them to be able to prove that there is this PAS going on in the case. How do you identify an expert? I'll ask Rebecca first and then Dan. I mean, what is the best way to identify an expert that's truly going to help your case out? It's really difficult, but the the experts that are willing to go to court are willing to go to court, right? And so the courts are generally familiar with a handful of either parental capacity evaluators or reunification therapists or, you know, others that kind of fit in those categories that we regularly see in courtrooms. 
Um, and so that's that's going to be the starting point is get somebody who has been in this court before they've testified before these judges before given their opinion, they've qualified before. Um, and that's going to be your best bet at getting someone who's going to be qualified and they're going to testify the right way. Sometimes parents want to bring in a, a provider of some sort, either the child's therapist or counselor or psychologist or someone like that who's been providing some sort of treatment or counseling or, or something else. Um, but if they've never testified in a Virginia court, they've never qualified as an expert, they may not know how to present exactly what's going on in a way where there's there's going to be you know traction in the case as a result. Um, and so even if you have a really good treating provider, you're probably going to need to go outside of that and look for someone who's qualified in this court before and presented this type of case before. And they're going to be able to review all those records, talk to the treating provider and get that information in. It's just that they're going to be able to do it properly. You know, you're you're so spot on on the qualified expert and so many uh, attorneys have fallen trapped to just anyone who will say what they want to hear. And uh, one of the things that really resonates with me, and you're talking about the treating providers, that's so important because I remember this one case I had, it was a week long trial and they wanted to use the child's uh, treating provider. Well, you're, you're going to have a breakdown of the, of the patient relationship because now that child's no longer going to trust that mm -hmm. therapist that they've confided in for so long. So it doesn't make sense to bring that person in and be and, and then breach that. And so we had a hearing on that and the court ruled in our favor that that provider isn't able to testify because all the progress that we've made is just going to be for naught essentially. And so we wanted to get a proper expert involved and someone who was qualified. And w the way that I usually approach cases is we want to do our due diligence, as Rebecca was saying. You want someone that is familiar with the jurisdiction that you're in. You want someone that has testified before, but then you also want to take that next step to look at what, what have been their opinions in, in certain cases, because you can find that information. The last thing you want is to have someone that's testified on both sides, or at least someone that has, uh, has proffered different opinions. And I've been in that situation and on the other side. They, they had a, a well-known expert and they were, everything was humming along great. And then I pulled out a transcript from a prior case and, it was what I wanted. So, I mean, you just completely discredit that person right out of the gate. And so you want to make sure that the, the expert you're seeking to hire has the experience, has the credentials, but you also want to meet with them first. You want to interview them to make sure that they're the proper fit for the case. Yeah, that, that was a question I was getting ready to ask because we know that experts can be expensive. I mean, I was going to ask is in your opinions, is it money well spent to prep the expert, not prep the expert, but talk to the experts, see what they're going to say, see how they're going to testify so that you are able to respond as a practitioner to this is what you're going to say. You're an expert. You're not going to change your testimony for me, but I need to be able to respond to what you say. How important is that to both of you? I, it's extremely important. And I think the the public got a very good view of a, of a terrible expert and money not well spent in the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case. Um, everybody looked at that and said, why on earth did you ever hire this person? And as he was giving opinions and then saying, oh, well, you know, I was told it was this and I was told it was that. And you, you just, you, you could tell he hadn't really thoroughly dug into the situation and he hadn't been thoroughly prepared for what he was going to testify about. Even just very small challenges 
to his opinion and to his testimony, it, it all just fell apart. And so if you're going to put in the time and the effort and the investment to bring in this expert, you don't want to cheapskate out on the preparation. You want to make sure that they have a report that is well you know, documented, well based in, in whatever it is. Their recommendations are going to be sound and that they're going to be prepared for those cross-exam questions. They're going to be prepared for challenges to their opinion or to their position. Um, because without that, you, you might as well not bring them in if they're just going to fall apart. And yet now you've spent thousands of dollars and you're no better off, you know, that that's a bad investment all the way around. Yeah. Uh, preparedness is the key, right? The five P's proper preparedness prevents poor <laughs> performance. <laughs> that's a tongue twist. I had to think about that in my head while you were talking, but it, it, it rings so true. And not only do you want to interview that expert, but how I've handled cases is I, let the, I say, you're the expert. Tell me the questions you want me to ask because I need to educate myself and be able to uh, present your case or my case in the proper way. So I want the expert to do a lot of the heavy lifting in the beginning, but then we'll start poking mm -hmm. holes in their case. And I'll have another one of my colleagues come in and do cross-examination and we'll find other competing or conflicting opinions and ask the expert, so what is your response to this? And how does it apply to, to my case? And then you can identify it. Not only do you believe that this person is credible, but will a judge and or a jury believe that? And then are you, at the end of the day, sabotaging your own case just because you want to get an expert involved? So I, I think Rebecca's spot on. You don't want to cheap out on it. You want to make sure that you're, you're hiring the best person for your case and your jurisdiction. Hi, this is Dan Cuneo with I Now Pronounce You Divorce. Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's podcast. Please join us next week for part two. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. If you found this episode helpful and you want more informational content, please be sure to subscribe and join us on all major social media platforms, including YouTube. Stay connected for more exciting updates and tips.